I was reading a book this week. It was an, it's an older book, not too old, but it was an older book, and it was a, a book about this journalist who was interviewing people who uh, had views that were very different than his own. And he was interviewing this one uh, scholar, trying to understand his point of view on a number of different things, and he was asking him all kinds of questions. And then he said, you know what, I really had to doubt this guy's credibility. Because here was a guy who claimed to know all kinds of different stuff, very smart guy, PhD, and all kinds of different things, but he held out hope that one day the Cubs would win the World Series. And at the time, as it was probably even up to 18 months ago, anybody the Cubs will never, I mean, never win the World Series. Most of us didn't believe they would win the World Series when there were two outs left in the last inning. We knew they would blow it somehow, right? And in 2016, what happened? The Cubs did, in fact, win the World Series. And for Cubs fans around the world, and for those of us who have spent a little bit of time in the bleacher seats, we can't believe this is happening. Cubs win the World Series. Hope is fulfilled, right? Now a new baseball season has started. And what is everybody saying? Can they do it again? See how quickly it is? Decades and decades of hope builds and builds and builds, and then hope is fulfilled, and it's 10 minutes after the World Series is over, and, every, and the hope begins to what? Fade and fade and fade and say, well, now we need hope restored again. Hope is gone. We need, can they do it again? See, here in this world, in this life, we know all kinds of things about hope. Hope we can find in all kinds of places. The question is not whether or not we can find hope. Here's the question I think we actually have. You can disagree with me if you'd like. The question is not can we find hope. The question is can we find enduring hope? Can we find hope that will last longer than 10 minutes? Can we find hope that will be there in the thick and thin of things? I would suggest the world as we know it, even in our own hearts, we live lives that are a quest for some kind of hope, and we look for hope in all kinds of different ways, don't we? I mean, maybe you were hoping the Cubs would win the World Series, but now you've had to move on because that's been achieved, right? Some of us, we had to put hope that the Seahawks would win the Super Bowl. Done, and now it's faded. Now if they don't win, we're just terribly upset. We have all kinds of hopes. You know, we have a hope that we'll live forever, don't we? We have hope for health and longevity. Not only do we want to live forever, we want to live forever healthy and energetic as though we were teenagers, forever. You know, the oldest person in the world just died. I don't know if you read this story, but this lady was 117-some years old, and she just died. But this is significant. Do you know why this is important? She was the last person on planet Earth that had lived in the 1800s. With her death, there is now no one alive who lived in the 19th century. We live lives seeking health and longevity, and we put death in the back closet, and we pretend not to think about it, and we, and we pretend like we live forever. I don't want to ruin your day. We don't live forever. The world has a quest for hope and health and longevity. We have a quest for hope in our prosperity. We have a quest to discover exactly how much resource we can have where we will finally feel secure. The quote from Rockefeller is famous, richest man in the world who had earned a, a bucket load of money. How much money do you need to earn? What did he say? Just one more dollar. We look uh, for hope in, in security and safety of our resources. We look for hope in political stability and safety. 
We look for hope that the right leaders will be in place and they will put in place the right policies and procedures so that we will finally, after a millennia of human history, achieve world peace. We're almost there, right? If you think we're almost there, whatever you do, do not turn on the news because you do not want to see what they're saying. But isn't it amazing, these three things, we say, oh, of course there's no, no permanent and enduring hope in those things. Man, we chase these things like nobody's business, right? Okay, if you don't, you know people who do, right? The world has a quest for hope. The, the quest for enduring hope is, I think, obvious to anybody on planet Earth. The problem is our success in achieving enduring, long-standing hope is lacking. Our success is not limited. Our success is missing. We have not been able to achieve it with all of our success in health and longevity, with all of our prosperity, and with all of our political stability, which all of these things, for any of us who call the U.S. our home, we've achieved these in spades. Jesus dares to offer us something we have not been able to accomplish, enduring hope. Jesus dares to offer us enduring hope. And in fact, the way he accomplished our enduring hope was as daring as the notion that he could provide it. He was daring enough to say, I can give you hope that's going to last forever. And the means by which I will provide that enduring hope is as daring as the notion that it's available. Is enduring hope possible? I just want to cover a couple of things to demonstrate that it is possible through Jesus' daring accomplishment. First of all, Jesus died on the cross. Thank you for that, Greg. We had no idea. Jesus died on the cross. His death on the cross is a historical fact. No sane historian would deny the historical fact of Jesus' death on the cross. In fact, there is more information regarding Jesus' life, closer to Jesus' life, than we have on Alexander the Great. Jesus died on the cross. But here's something we have to understand. Jesus predicted and anticipated his death on the cross for most of his life. He anticipated it, but he predicted it near the end. He made clear to his followers over and over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the religious and political elite, and they will kill me. And three days later, I will raise from the dead. He predicted his death often to his followers over and over again. It's quite obvious, though, they had no idea what, they were ta- what he was talking about. Most likely, they figured he was being figurative. He's being metaphorical. Of course, Jesus, you're going to serve us as though you were dead. And he's trying to, no, I mean actually dying. Jesus predicted his own death because his death was on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a, a misstep. In the reading that I read earlier, notice that when he was explaining to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember that when we were just reading it? He explained to them from Moses, which is the Old Testament law, all the way through all the prophets, that the Messiah had to come and die. Jesus was trying to explain to them, listen, my death on the cross was not plan B. My death on the cross was the plan from the beginning. Jesus had anticipated going to the cross from moment one. This wasn't plan B. It wasn't, we uh, have fumbled the ball. How do we recover the ball? It was, this is the primary goal was Jesus to go to the cross. In fact, I would put it this way. The death of Christ and his resurrection was the culmination of all of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus was saying. 
If you've read the Old Testament, what's the point? Well, every time you read the Old Testament, you, you should close it and say, boy, they better hope Jesus shows up because they're in a world of hurt. His death was the culmination of the Old Testament. His death was not plan B. His death wasn't him trying to make up the difference. It was always the plan. Think all the way back to the beginning. You've heard the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God sets them up with this idyllic paradise. Eat whatever you want. And I've said this often. We know there was a, a tree of steak. It goes without saying that there could be no steak in the Garden of Eden. Of course there was. I don't know what a tree of pulled pork would look like goes without saying there was one, and then one right next to it with buns, and the next one with, okay, moving on. He says, you can eat anything you want except that one tree, and if you eat from that tree, you will die. Why will they die? Because God's a big meanie? No. God says, listen, if you disobey me and walk away from me, you will be cutting off the one relationship that provides life to you. I am the life-giving God. It is the means of life for you to have relationship with me. And you, if you say, God, we don't need you, then you will be cutting yourself off intentionally from the life I provide. And so Adam and Eve, and of course us with them, we did that. We cut ourselves off from him with our own disobedience. And we've cut ourselves off from his life-sustaining power and presence. And he says, you will surely die. If you're wondering if that came true, it did. Everybody dies. God realizes now and understands, as he always did, is that mankind will die for their sin. But guess what? Mankind can't die for their sin. So from the very beginning, he says, I will come and die for you. Genesis chapter 3, he says, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. From the very beginning, the first few chapters of Genesis, Jesus is saying, I will come and I will die. It's been the plan from the beginning. Is enduring hope possible? I need you to think about this and understand this, because this is really, really important. It may be hard to imagine, but could God really be this kind? Could, could God actually be kind enough that before you were ever even born, he had already made a plan for your redemption? That, that before we ever disobeyed, he said, listen, don't worry about it, I got it. At some point in our lives, we came up with this idea that God is a big meanie. If you read the Bible, you're going to discover he's as kind as they come. Because even before the moment of our birth, he had said, I will make a way for you to be with me to overcome death. I am, in fact, this good and this kind. Jesus' death was not an accident. Jesus' death was not plan B. Jesus' death was on purpose that he might demonstrate to us the goodness and kindness of God himself. God really is this good. The monster we have in our mind that is God is not God. It is a figment, and I don't know where it comes from. The God who is is the God who gives and dies on our behalf. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You say, how do I know? Well, I don't know. I just figured it out. Certainly God is kind enough. Of course he sent Jesus to die, but God is only this kind for good people. God is, is really a kind God, offers salvation and, and resurrection in Christ, but of course he only offers uh, this to good people. So second way we understand enduring hope, his followers were broken people, not spiritual giants. 
I'm only going to point out two people of the dozens we could go through. Let's start with the big cheese himself, the Apostle Peter. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to a garden to pray. Peter did the big man thing and fell asleep. Then when the army came to arrest Jesus, which Jesus had been telling Peter over and over and over again that this was going to happen, Peter does the noble thing and tries to cut some guy's head off. He said, well, doesn't he cut off his ear? Why does he cut off his ear? Because he took his sword and tried to disembody his head. Luckily, the high priest's assistant was a ninja of some kind, <laughs> ducked his head sideways, and all Peter got was an ear. This is what happened when a fisherman tries to be a swordsman. So Peter, on the night that Jesus was voluntarily going to his death, decided to try and decapitate somebody. Jesus rebukes him and heals the young man. Then after Jesus is arrested, Peter follows Jesus at a distance, of course, after having abandoned him. And then while Jesus is on trial in the kangaroo court in the middle of the night with no witnesses, Peter denies Jesus three times and says to all those around him, I don't know the guy. Then, see, I don't even think that's the worst thing. Then, after Jesus is risen, we read about it in the passage, he runs to the empty tomb. After two ladies had told him that Jesus is raised from the dead, he wanders into the tomb, and what does he say? Gee, I wonder what's going on here. I mean, here's Jesus, not in the tomb, two women who have said they have seen Jesus, and Peter is still befuddled. Oh, yeah, this is a spiritual giant. It gets worse. Peter and Jesus reconcile. Peter does his work uh, preaching in Jerusalem. They receive the Spirit. Thousands of people are getting saved. The Holy Spirit shows up to Peter and says, I want you to go share the gospel with Cornelius the Gentile. And Peter says, I don't know if you noticed this, I'm a Jew, I don't talk to Gentiles. God has to show him a vision three times, not once, three times to convince him to go share the gospel with the Gentile, which he does, and Cornelius responds in faith and gets saved, right? So now Peter's all fixed, right? It gets worse. Years later, when he's a mature, seasoned citizen of the kingdom of God, he shows up in a church in Galatia, which is a southeastern section of modern-day Turkey, and he's meeting with this church, and all of a sudden the Jews show up, and what does Peter do when it's dinner time? Oh, the Jews won't want me see me eating with the Gentiles. Well, he'd been eating with the Gentiles all week long. The Jews show up. He goes, oh, I better eat with the Jews. No ham for me. The Apostle Paul shows up and has to confront him to his face. Now, I'm telling, when I'm, why am I explaining all this to you? His followers are broken people. The enduring hope that Christ offers is not merely for the good people because there aren't any, and Peter's a great example of it. The Apostle Paul is essentially a murderer and a terrorist when he encounters the risen Savior. I don't know if you know this, but one uh, personality trait of the Apostle Paul was he is stubborn as an ox. His salvation didn't fix that. At one point in his Christian ministry, he was so stubborn that two of his missionaries would no longer travel with him. Oh yeah, Jesus fixed all of his relational problems, didn't he? Jesus' followers are broken people, not spiritual giants. If the Bible was written to make the good people of the world more gooder,
If the Bible was written to make good people better, it was written wrong. Have you ever read it? In some cases, it feels like they get worse. The Bible was written so broken people would find hope and salvation in a risen Savior. The Bible was written so that broken people might be used by God in their weakness, in their brokenness. Enduring hope in Christ, who died on purpose, is not merely for good people. The hallmark of followers of God in the Bible is that they did not have their act together. I might even suggest this. A hallmark of people who follow God in the Bible is they didn't have their act together to an embarrassing level. There's some stuff in the Old Testament I won't read to my kids. And God used these broken people nonetheless. And if in the midst of that you say, uh, God has lowered his standards, that's wrong. It's God uses broken people. There is hope to be found that God died on purpose for us to use broken people because that's where he does his best work. This is great news for those of us who do not have our act together. This is great hopeful news for those of us, even those who of us who have already trusted Jesus, who are going, I can't figure this thing out. I don't have my act together. Well, in Christ, we find tremendous hope that God saves broken people. God uses broken people in their weakness. Now, some of you are wondering, maybe God is compromising. God has compromised his standards, right? He's lowered his standards, now he's using bad people. It's not the case. In fact, God has something in mind that is unimaginable. God has something in mind that I don't think anybody would have predicted other than himself. And that is this, that his resurrection reveals to us what he's up to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us what God is up to in this world and in our life. His resurrection tells us this, and I want you to hear this. Are you ready? This is mind-blowing. Life doesn't end. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that life doesn't end. Since Jesus is raised... Since Jesus is raised from the dead in Christ, those of us who are in Christ by faith, guess what? We're not looking forward to an afterlife. What a silly notion. What are we looking forward to? Our actual life. The one we were designed for. The one we were created and raised up for. Jesus has been raised, and so now finally we discover this is not what we were meant for. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, Every hunger and appetite I have in my heart, good or bad, tells me there's someplace else where I am supposed to be satisfied. Resurrection turns all of our worldly ideas upside down. For religious people, the resurrection ruins everything. Religious people don't like the resurrection. Why? We like our religion controllable. What do I mean? If you do good deeds, you earn God's blessing. It's very simple. Good people do good deeds, and God blesses them in their life. So we can do a number of things with that interesting notion. Number one, if you're not being blessed, what does that mean? You must be doing something naughty. I don't know what it is. If you lost your job, you must be up to something. I know it. Just a matter of time before I find out what it is. 
good deeds means God blesses and everything's square. What does this turn God into? He's, ex- he's essentially our waiter. Waiter, I've done something good. Another raise, please. Maybe a promotion. Maybe you could make it so my wife wants everything I want and we no longer argue. Good deeds, God's blessing, here and now. Now, see, religious people say it this way. If we do good deeds, God's going to be nice to us and give us all kinds of blessing. If you're, if you're non-religious but spiritual, which is one of the largest growing groups in our country, you don't say you do good deeds to earn God's blessing. You do good deeds, and that hooks you up with what? Karma. And when something bad happens to somebody, what do we say? Karma got them. It's all the same. Karma, trying to earn God's favor, it's all the same. For non-religious, the resurrection also turns everything on its head. It also means that God is not merely dwelling in the realm of the spiritual and immaterial. Since Christ is raised from the dead, that means God is intending to do something powerful in the material and the natural. He's going to rework everything, including our bodies, one day. The resurrection demonstrates that God's power is not absent, it is present. And I need to come to terms with that. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in a city called Corinth, and I just want to read a couple of verses from this. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there if you want or not. Here's what he said. If it is preached, if it is declared that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. I can tell you, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, religion will buy you nothing. It's, and frankly, religion is kind of a pain, isn't it? All the fun things you want to do, apparently, are against the rules. Without the resurrection, all is lost. Without, without resurrection, we have no hope. With the resurrection, though, our hope is completely redesigned. It's completely redefined. In fact, he says this later. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen? Christ is risen. Okay, you sort of believe it. At this point, based on our faith, he's got like two feet out. He's like, I can't decide. I'm just being silly. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus, God in the flesh. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ is the first fruits then when he comes to those who belong to him. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15, if you're following. The end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And when it says everything must be put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. This is what Paul says, saying, Since Christ is raised, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus. If I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? 
If the dead are not raised, Paul said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is intellectually honest about what, what, what hinges on the reality of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, all of life is merely a pursuit of my own appetites. If there is no resurrection, all deeds, whether good or bad, are merely meant to serve my own intentions, my own desires, and my own purposes. There is no halfway between those two. If there is no resurrection, my entire world is hinged on my own satisfaction. And what's the problem with that? We're not satisfied. It's unbelievable. Uh, the United States and other developed countries in the West, we are uh, displaying and demonstrating a level of despair beyond many, many countries around the world, despite the fact that we have everything anybody could have ever dreamed of. So what happens, absent the resurrection, we pursue our own appetites, and what happens when we get everything we want? It's a line from a U2 song. I gave her everything she ever wanted. It wasn't what she wanted. And that's how our hearts function. We got everything we ever wanted. Yeah, you know, it's not quite it. It's like trying to scratch your back. You think you got it, and it moves. Okay, it's happened to you too. That helps me feel better. Why is this the case? Let me read just one more section of Scripture, which, as many of you know, means nothing. Some will ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? That's a silly question. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, do you, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else, where uh, God gives it to the body uh, as it is determined. Each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So he compares the resurrection with gardening. And this is gardening season. Many of you are planting tomatoes and zucchini and these other things. You don't plant a tomato seed and hope that a big giant tomato seed will grow. You plant a tomato seed anticipating a tomato plant will grow. Or like me, you plant a tomato seed and dozens and dozens of other weeds grow, but the tomato does not. <laughs> but what he is saying is this. What is planted is raised different yet related to it. The, the tomato plant is related to the tomato seed, but it's not the seed. It's, it's a whole new thing. So how do we answer the question with Christ? How do we find this enduring hope? Let me put it this way. In Jesus, we are no longer seeking to maximize our life merely as the tomato seed. That's here. Paul is saying, listen, what you plant in the ground is not what is raised. I don't mean to be depressing. All of us are going to get planted. Right now, he's saying we're the seed. And what's raised is different. In Jesus, in finding enduring hope, is we decide I am no longer going to try and maximize my life as a seed. Instead, I want to seek to maximize my life as a growing plant, which is an eternal life, which is my actual life, which isn't come yet. My hope is not found in my life before I'm planted. My hope is found in my life after I am raised, the life I have truly been designed for. Did I tell you I wasn't going to read any more scripture? You know that was a total lie. 
1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So let me describe you today. You are mortal, dishonorable, weak, and natural. Notice Paul doesn't say we work really hard throughout our Christian life to fix those things. What does he say about every person who gets planted in the ground? Their body is mortal, dishonor, uh, dishonorable, weak, and natural. Our bodies are, are mortal, so we try to live forever. We try to maximize our health forever because somehow we're going to find out uh, immortality in this life. Our bodies have dishonor, so we seek in this life to live with dignity, to display our prosperity and our goodness and our respectability, despite the fact that Paul calls a spade a spade. We have dishonor. In this life, we are weak, and yet we try to grow strong and act as though we're strong, and we fill our minds with education, with degrees plastered across the wall, and ever-increasing successes in our life, hoping that maybe some will be convinced, I'm not what the Bible says I am, weak. Our bodies are natural and, and fundamentally unspiritual, and so we spend the rest of our lives trying to be good, being compassionate, we feel guilty about the naughty things we've done, and so we give 10 bucks to the guy who stands on the curb outside of Walmart. Our bodies are mortal. We are dishonorable. We are weak. We are natural. Last section of Scripture, and I'm being honest this time. I, dare to you, brother, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And we were very much like that professor who believed in the Cubs would win the World Series. We mindlessly, to some degree, right? We say, no, 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 no we're going to win this. We have a Savior who beat the pants off of death. And that's a theological truth. And everybody, like that reporter might have said, these are kooks. But there will be a day when the game is over and we will cry out with our Savior, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? How do we find enduring hope? It's not in life here as the tomato seed. It's in finding hope in the actual life we're destined for, which is life with Christ forever. So the question is, do you want to be changed? Do you want to be raised? Would you like death defeated in your life? If you think it's working out in your current pursuits, I, you know, by all means, I would just suggest that all of human history indicates we fail miserably at living forever. 
But if you would like to stop maximizing the life here as a little seed and rather think about a life of eternity, living the way you were intended to live with the one you were intended to live with, then you must be united with Christ in his resurrection. To live that life, you must be with Christ in his resurrection. Thankfully, that's very simple to do. You simply never sin again. can't do it. Well, then let me rephrase. You simply never do anything bad again and never again miss one opportunity to do anything that God would have you do. Forever. Even while you're sleeping. You won't even have dreams about your neighbor's house that you love burning down. You say, well, I can't control my dreams. Hey, sorry, it's part of the deal. Perfection is perfection. So you guys can't pull that off? Me either. I'm lousy at being good. To be united with Christ is merely a matter of saying, I trust you, Jesus. I believe that what you did on the cross was for me. It's called reliance. It's called trust. It's, it's a matter of saying, I can't do it, so I'll, I believe you did it. It's not hocus pocus. It's not fairy tale, Disney wish upon a star. It's he's righteous, I'm not. I'll take his righteousness. It's the reality that this is more real than anything we've ever experienced. This is life that lasts forever. It requires us, though, to admit that we're mortal, dishonorable, weak, and natural. And maybe that you have decided, regardless of what level of success or excitement you've achieved in this life, you will at least admit, in the quietness of your own heart, it's not paying off the way you thought it would. It's because we're not designed to maximize this life. We're designed for something more compelling, which is a life that never ends Jesus is raised. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There is something better than this life. May we live for that life with enduring hope rather than the short-term payoff of this place.